0: Welcome to the Talking Leaves podcast. I'm your host, Ms. Kyra, and we are returning for episode 14 of our mini series about Homer's The Odyssey. In this episode, we'll see the conclusion and culmination of Odysseus' homecoming. All of the foreshadowing we've talked about, in the justice we've yearned to see, comes about, and then some. It's really quite intense. There is no mercy, there are no pardons, there is only Odysseus and Athena and their sidekicks, Telemachus and Eumaeus, raining down justice and vengeance on the suitors, and on a few other people. Without further ado, let's get into it. In our version of the text, we jump from book 17 with Argos, the loyal dog waiting for his master's return before joining the spirit world, to book 21, The Test of the Bow, a book in which Odysseus proves his manliness to all. We receive a small summary of what happens in books 18 through 20, but I'll also provide a summary here too. Like in the past, these summaries largely come from Sparknotes. In book 18, Odysseus is disguised as a beggar by Athena and is hanging out amongst the suitors. Another beggar, Arnaeus, nicknamed Iris, struts into the palace. For a beggar, according to Sparknotes, he's rather arrogant and rude. He insults Odysseus and challenges him to a boxing match because who can't beat this old man? Athena steps in and gives Odysseus extra strength. Iris, the other beggar, soon regrets his challenge and tries to escape. But by now, the suitors have taken notice and are egging on the fight for the sake of their own entertainment. Odysseus quickly ends this with a KO and stops just short of killing him. The suitors congratulate Odysseus, and as Sparknotes tells us, one in particular. The moderate Amphiminos toasts him and gives him food. Odysseus, fully aware of the bloodshed to come and overcome by pity for him, pulls the man aside. He predicts to him that Odysseus will soon be home. ...and gives him a thinly veiled warning to abandon the palace and return to his own land. But he doesn't depart, because Athena has bound him to death at the hands of Telemachus. Athena is bloodthirsty. Athena encourages Penelope then, in Book 18, to appear... She gives her more beauty to incite the suitors further and she tells them, the suitors, that Odysseus had instructed her to take a new husband if he failed to return before Telemachus started growing facial hair. And well, he's now growing facial hair, apparently. So Sparknotes tells us she then tricks the suitors to the silent delight of Odysseus into bringing her gifts by claiming that any suitor worth his salt would try to win her hand by giving her things instead of taking what's rightfully hers. The suitors then shower her with presents, and as they celebrate, Odysseus instructs the maidservants to go to Penelope. But one maidservant is rude, insults him, and he scares her into leaving. And Sparknotes continues to tell us, hoping to make Odysseus even more angry at the suitors, Athena now inspires Eurymachus to insult him. When Odysseus responds with insults of his own, Eurymachus throws a stool at him, but misses, hitting a servant instead. Just as a riot is about to break out, Telemachus steps in and diffuses the situation. In Book 19, Odysseus and Telemachus work together to remove all of the weapons from the hall in secret. Athena provides them with a nightlight so they can work in secret. And to keep the servants from being suspicious, Telemachus says they are storing the arms to keep them from damage. Yeah. Yeah. After 20 years, let's finally worry about them now. Telemachus retires, and Odysseus is joined, again, he's still in disguise, by Penelope. She's curious about this new visitor, and she heard he claims to have met Odysseus. She tests this man's knowledge, and Odysseus, or the beggar, describes Odysseus so well, Penelope cries. He tells Penelope that Odysseus has long suffered trying to return home, but he, this beggar, tells Penelope, He'll be home soon. Penelope offers him a room, but he denies it. Before she leaves, she tells this beggar about a dream. We see some more bird signs. An eagle swoops down upon her 20 pet geese and kills them all. It then perches on her roof, and in a human voice says that he is her husband who has just put her lovers to death. Penelope declares that she has no idea what this dream means. Odysseus, of course, is happy to explain. Odysseus the eagle will kill anyone who tries to have Penelope. Even with this explanation, Penelope says it is time that she married again, and she says she will marry the first man who can shoot an arrow through all the holes of twelve axes set in a line. A servant, Eurycleia, who we saw earlier trailing after Telemachus in Book One, was the servant girl who was so loved by Odysseus's father Laertes that he treated her as well as his own wife but never touched her, she steps in and washes the beggar's feet. In doing so, she sees a scar, the same scar Odysseus has, and she knows this beggar, despite his disguise, is her Odysseus. In book 20, Odysseus and Telemachus meet different servants, most notably a few still loyal to Odysseus, Eumaeus, the swineherd again, and Philoteus, a kindly and loyal herdsman who hasn't given up hope for Odysseus's return. As the manor springs to life, the suitor's return, plotting Telemachus's death, again. And Sparknotes tells us, Amphimonus, that nice suitor who fed Odysseus, convinces them to call off the assassination of Telemachus when a sign of doom appears in the form of an eagle carrying a dove in its talons, again with the birds. But Athena keeps the suitors antagonistic, or looking for a fight all throughout dinner to prevent Odysseus's anger from losing its edge. A wealthy, rude suitor, throws a cow's hoof at Odysseus. In response, Telemachus threatens to run him through with his sword. The suitors laugh and laugh, failing to notice that they, in the walls of the room, are covered in blood, and that their faces have assumed a foreign, ghostly look, all of which one man interprets as a portent, or a signal, of inescapable doom. Now we turn to book 21, The Test of the Bow. This is the contest Penelope has set before the suitors to determine her new husband. At the beginning of our reading, she enters the storeroom and takes down the heavy bow that Odysseus left behind when he left for the Trojan War. We get this detailed description of the storeroom, emphasizing the power of this moment, of Penelope, his wife, who has waited faithfully for 20 years, Accepting defeat almost, and entering this room, seeing the dust motes go across in front of her eyes as she reaches up and gets her husband's weapon of choice, this sets the stage for the challenge. Be as great as Odysseus, and Penelope will marry you, as the text says. Now Penelope sank down, holding the weapon on her knees, and drew her husband's great bow out, and sobbed, and bit her lip, and let the salt tears flow. Clearly, she's doing what she feels she must, but she still mourns the loss of Odysseus. Then back she went to face the crowded hall. Tremendous bow in hand, and on her shoulder hung the quiver spiked with coughing death. That is an awesome metaphor. These arrows were spiked with coughing death? They were arrows meant to kill. Dun-dun-dun. With her shining veil across her cheeks, she speaks to the suitors, and I have to admire her fire here. My lords, hear me, suitors indeed, you commandeered this house to feast and drink in day and night, my husband being long gone, long out of mind. You found no justification for yourselves, none except your lust to marry me. Stand up then, we now declare a contest for that prize. Here is my lord Odysseus's hunting bow. Bend and string it if you can. Who sends an arrow through iron axe-helve sockets, twelve in a line? I will join my life with his and leave this place, my home. She tells them, suitors indeed, kind of mocking them. They're not suitors at all, they're scavengers. Taking over the house, feeding off of her wealth, her hospitality, There was no reason for them to be there. They had no justification for their existence. None except their greed and their lust to marry the rich and beautiful Penelope. Well, she says, prove it. Prove yourself. Whoever can be as great as Odysseus, who can do what only he has done, can marry me. Despite heating and gracing the bow, the lesser suitors prove unable to string it. The most able suitors, Antinous and Eurymachus, hold off. While the suitors are busy with a bow, Odysseus, still disguised as an old beggar, goes to enlist the aid of his two trusted servants, Eumaeus, the swineherd, and Philoteus, the cowherd. He asks these trusted servants if they would stand by Odysseus if he returned. Would they help Odysseus defeat the suitors? Would you be men enough to stand by Odysseus if he came back? Suppose he dropped out of a clear sky as I did. Suppose some god should bring him. Would you bear arms for him or for the suitors? A little obvious there, Odysseus. And these loyal servants confirm. They would stand by Odysseus. They hate the suitors and the other servants who traded their loyalty away from Odysseus. Odysseus then reveals himself, and he rewards their loyalty. I am home, for I am he. I bore adversities, but in the 20th year I am ashore in my own land. I find the two of you alone amongst my people, longed for my coming. Prayers I never heard except your own, that I might come again. So now what is in store for you, I'll tell you. If Zeus brings down the suitors by my hand, I promise marriages to both, and cattle, and houses built near mine, and you shall be brothers in arms to my Telemachus. Well... Loyalty clearly pays off if they continue their loyalty and help him bring down the suitors then he'll marry them both off give them both cattle and houses near his manor and they will be like brothers to Telemachus they'll be nearly princes he proves himself by showing them the same scar that Eurycleia the maid knew and recognized as Odysseus's the servant seeing the scar fall to tears and hug him He brushes them off and tells them, Now listen to your orders. When the time comes, those gentlemen to a man will be dead against giving me bow or quiver. Defy them. Eumaeus, bring the bow and put it in my hands there at the door. Tell the women to lock their own doors tight. Tell them if someone hears the shock of arms or groans of men in court or hall, not one must show her face. But keep still at her weaving. Philoteus, Run to the outer gate and lock it. Throw the crossbar and lash it. In other words, no matter what the suitors say, give me the bow and arrows. Lock the women away, presumably for safety, and then lock the outer gate so no one can escape the hall. Odysseus the beggar asks the suitors if he might try the bow. Worried that the old man may show them up, they refuse but Penelope urges them to let Odysseus try. At Telemachus' request, Penelope leaves the men to settle the question of the bow amongst themselves. Two trusted servants lock the doors of the room, and Telemachus orders the bow be given to Odysseus. And taking his time, riling up the suitors, Odysseus, the beggar, inspects every inch of the bow, tapping it here, tapping it there, And the suitors, who have failed in their own attempts with a bow, do the predictable. They make fun of him. A bow lover. Dealer in old bows. Maybe he has one like it at home. (laughs) Or has an itch to make one for himself. See how he handles it, the sly old buzzard. And one disdainful suitor added this. May his fortune grow an inch for every inch he bends it. But the man skilled in all ways of contending. Oh boy, this epithet. Things are going to get real when we hear this epithet. The man skilled in all ways of contending, satisfied by the great bow's look, strung the bow easily and in one motion, a feat none of the suitors could achieve. Then he slid his hand down the cord and plucked it, So the taut gut vibrating hummed and sang a swallow's note. In the hushed hall, it smote the suitors and all their faces changed. Then Zeus thundered overhead, one loud crack for a sign. And Odysseus laughed within himself that the son of crooked-minded Cronus had flung that omen down. And this is their oh no moment. They hear the thunder of Zeus. They hear the tolling of their death. And almost in shock, they continue to watch this beggar. Odysseus picks up one arrow and knocks it, and he turns towards the obstacle. The 12 axe heads lined up, which he must send the arrow through now flashed the arrow from twanging bow clean as a whistle through every socket ring, and grazed not one. Then, quietly Odysseus addresses his son, Telemachus, the stranger you welcomed in your hall has not disgraced you. I did not miss, neither did I take all day stringing the bow. My hand and eye are sound, not so contemptible as the young men say. The hour has come to cook their lordship's mutton. Supper by daylight. In other words, I didn't mess around all day, greasing the bow, trying to string it. I got up there and I did it. I have shown honor to this host who welcomed me in. Now it is time for you young men, the suitors, to become dinner. Not literally. He isn't going to eat them, but he's going to roast them, figuratively. With that... He dropped his eyes and nodded, and the prince Telemachus, true son of King Odysseus, belted his sword on, clapped hand to his spear, and with a clink and glitter of keen bronze stood by his chair in the forefront near his father. book 22, Death in the Great Hall. The title says it all. People gonna die. And this book is pretty self-explanatory, so mostly I'm going to be reading it to you and pointing out my favorite parts and providing a little bit of commentary. Now shrugging off his rags, the wiliest fighter of the islands leapt and stood on the broad door sill, his own bow in hand. He poured out at his feet a rain of arrows from the quiver. And spoke to the crowd. So much for that. Your clean cut game is over. Now watch me hit a target that no man has hit before. If I can make this shot, help me, Apollo. In my mind, Odysseus hops onto a table, guarding the exit and tells the suitors while aiming a bow and arrow at them, you will pay. And then he picks out the worst suitor. As the text says, he drew to his fist the cruel head of an arrow for Antonius, just as the young man leaned to lift his beautiful drinking cup, embossed, two-handled, golden. The cup was in his fingers, the wine was even at his lips. And did he dream of death? How could he? In that revelry amid his throng of friends, who would imagine a single foe, though a strong foe indeed? could dare to bring death's pain on him and darkness on his eyes. Odysseus' arrow hit him under the chin and punched up the feathers through his throat. Oh my gosh, that is intense. The man tumbles backwards, dramatically letting the wine cup fall, the blood comes rushing out of his nose, and with one last kick of life, he Antinous, with an arrow, through his chin and out the back of his head, knocks over the table, the bread and meat soaking up his blood. Quite predictably, the rest of the suitors freak the heck out. Now, as they craned to see their champion where he lay, the suitors jostled in uproar down the hall, everyone on his feet. Wildly, they turned and scanned the halls in the long room looking for arms, but not a shield. Not a good ashen spear was there for a man to take and throw. All they could do was yell in outrage at Odysseus. Foul to shoot at a man! That was your last shot! Your own throat will be slit for this. Our finest lad is down. You killed the best on Ithaca. Buzzards will tear out your eyes. They are dumb, as the text says, for they imagined as they wished that it was a wild shot, an unintended killing, Fools not to comprehend they were already in the grip of death. They think this guy, who just completed the challenge of sending an arrow through twelve axe heads, accidentally shot him? Seriously? They are dense. And Odysseus wastes no time in pointing out their stupidity. You yellow dogs! You thought I'd never make it home from the land of Troy. You took my house to plunder, twisted my maids to serve your bed. You dared... Bid for my wife while I was still alive? Contempt was all you had for the gods who rule white heaven. Contempt for what men say of you hereafter. Your last hour has come. You die in blood. Realizing it wasn't an accident and hearing the promise of each of their deaths, the suitors really begin to panic. They look around for an exit, for weapons, for anything to save themselves. Only one suitor has the courage to speak. Eurymachus. If you or Odysseus of Ithaca, come back. All that you say these men have done is true. Rash actions, many here, more in the countryside. But here he lies, the man who caused them all. Antinous was the ringleader. He whipped us to do these things. He cared less for a marriage than for the power of Cronian which means Zeus, had denied him as king of Ithaca. For that, he tried to trap your son and would have killed him. He is dead now and has his portion. Spare your own people. As for ourselves, we'll make restitution of wine and meat consumed and add each one a tithe of 20 oxen with gifts of bronze and gold to warm your heart. Meanwhile, we cannot blame you for your anger. This guy... Eurymachus has some brains. He tries to blame all of the hundred suitors actions on the dead dude. It was all him He did it because he was mad that Zeus who they called Cronian, which means son of Cronus Which that's what Zeus was did not appoint him king remember at this time the Greeks still believed that the gods appointed the next king so He was jealous that he wasn't appointed king and not only that but this guy even plotted to kill your son and he's already paid. So he's dead. Nothing we can do about that. So we will pay you back for the food and wine that we took. We will honor you again as king. We can't blame you for being mad because, you know, we kind of did some bad things, but it wasn't our fault. Let's just open the door. We'll all go home and we'll pay you extra taxes and interest on the things that we took from you. Mm, mm, mm. Amy will try. Really. Worth a couple claps. But Athena has been boiling this fight for a while. She kept riling up the suitors. She made sure that they continued to pester and ridicule Odysseus, insult him to keep Odysseus's anger sharp. This cannot end with anything other than their deaths. Not for the whole treasure of your fathers, all you enjoy, lands, flocks, or any gold put up by others, would I hold my hand. There will be killing till the score is paid. You forced yourselves upon this house. Fight your way out or run for it if you think you'll escape death. I doubt one man of you skins by. They all feel weak. Eurymachus alone, again, takes a stand and calls the suitors to fight against Odysseus together to be free. Eurymachus even gives the rest of the suitors a speech Hold up your tables to deflect the arrows, bring out your swords. "'Fight him and move him from the door, and we can all run out. "'Then Eurymachus takes out his own sword, "'lets out a horse cry, and charges Odysseus. "'But the kingly man let fly an arrow at that instant, "'and the quivering feathered butt sprang to the nipple of his breast "'as the barb struck in his liver. "'The bright broadsword clanged down. "'He lurched and fell aside, pitching across his table. "'His cup His bread and meat were spilt and scattered far and wide, and his head slammed to the ground. With that death, with the arrow piercing through his chest and coming out through his back and his liver, the suitors start to panic in earnest. Their two best suitors are dead. They fight to stay alive, but one by one, Odysseus and Telemachus take them down. Telemachus runs off to get Odysseus a helmet and shield and spears. And almost back-to-back, father and son fight against the suitors who had dishonored Odysseus, who had wronged Telemachus and Penelope. As our text wraps up with this chapter, we see that the suitors make various unsuccessful attempts to expel Odysseus from his post at the door. Athena urges Odysseus on to battle, yet holds back her fullest aid, waiting for Telemachus and Odysseus to prove themselves. Six of the suitors attempt an attack on Odysseus, but Athena deflects their arrows. Odysseus and his men seize this opportunity to launch their own attack, and the suitors begin to fall. At last, Athena's presence becomes known to all, as the shape of her shield becomes visible above the hall. The suitors, recognizing the intervention of the gods on Odysseus's behalf, are frantic to escape the hall. To no avail. Odysseus and his men are compared to falcons who show no mercy to the flocks of birds they pursue and capture, just like all the bird signs have been leading up to. Soon, the room is reeking with blood. Thus, the battle with the suitors comes to an end, and Odysseus prepares himself to meet Penelope. While this is a really neat and nice way to wrap up the book, much more happens. The suitors do not die alone. No, Odysseus orders Telemachus to round up all the maids. But for what? At first, it seems like they're just going to clean up the blood and gore of this battle. So while Penelope and Eurycleia, who is the seemingly only loyal female servant, are hidden away in the women's quarters, the maids clean up the death of the suitors. They wash the blood from the floor. Then, Odysseus orders Telemachus to kill each and every one of them. He tells Telemachus to hack them all up. Instead, Telemachus decides to hang them all. What? Yeah, that's right. Odysseus has his son kill the maids. These 12 maids who took care of the house, the maids who served the suitors food and wine, who either by choice or by force slept with the suitors. These 12 women were considered the most disloyal to Odysseus. And as a result for their betrayal of Odysseus, they're killed because they too must remain loyal to Odysseus in all ways. The punishment for disloyalty, death. And according to lit charts, Eurycleia is brought out and asked to identify who the most disloyal maids were, who shamed the household by sleeping with the suitors. Those are the women that are condemned to death. So it wasn't just the suitors who paid. There was a lot more to it. And in our version, we don't hear this. I wonder why. Finally, book 23, The Trunk of the Olive Tree. Odysseus is bathed and rubbed in golden oil, and Athena lends him beauty, head to foot. She made him taller, massive, with crisp, curling hair that is red-golden. She makes him godlike, and he sits there, facing his silent wife. In the first words we see him say to her, Strange woman, the immortals of Olympus made you hard, harder than any. Who else in the world would keep aloof as you do from her husband if he returned to her from years of trouble, cast on his own land in the 20th year? Nurse, make up a bed for me to sleep on. Her heart is iron in her breast. What the heck, bruh? You are transformed into Odysseus, the young god, and you expect your wife, who has waited for 20 years for you, to be like, yep, let's reunite. And feel so good. I love you. Without question. Without shock. Without being like, who the heck are you? Bruh. Get over yourself. Penelope speaks to Odysseus now. And she said, Strange man, if man you are. There is no pride on my part, nor scorn for you. Not even wonder, merely. I know so well how you, how he, appeared boarding that ship for Troy." But all the same, make up his bed for him, Eurycleia. Place it outside the bedchamber my lord built with his own hands. Pile the big bed with fleeces, rugs, and sheets of purest linen. She says, you are exactly what Odysseus seemed like when he left for Troy. How could you be the same after 20 years? I don't believe that you are really him. Athena, magic, fairy godmother, noisy Nelly, that's how he could look exactly the same. But Penelope doesn't know this. This could be a god in disguise trying to trick her. She tells Eurycleia to move the bed, the bed that Odysseus built by hand elsewhere so that this person, claiming to be Odysseus, can sleep on it. And with this, this clever little trap, she angers Odysseus and learns the truth of his identity. With this, she tried him to the breaking point, and he turned on her in a flashing rage Woman, by heaven you've stung me now. Who dared to move my bed? No builder had the skill for that unless a god came down to turn the trick. No mortal in his best days could budge it with a crowbar. There is our pact and our pledge, our secret sign built in that bed. My handiwork, no one else's. He goes on to explain that their secret was their bed. He built it around a tree so that it literally could not be moved. And while we're like, wait, what you, you built a bed around a tree. What? That's the point. There's literally no way to move this and keep it intact. So with this, with Odysseus revealing this secret knowledge, Penelope knows it is him and only him. And as the text says, their secret. And as she heard it told her knees grew tremulous and weak. Her heart failed with eyes, brimming tears. She ran to him "'throwing her arms around his neck "'and kissed him, murmuring, "'Do not rage at me, Odysseus. "'No one ever matched your caution. "'Think what difficulty the gods gave. "'They denied us our life together "'in our prime and flowering years, "'kept us from crossing into age together. "'Forgive me, don't be angry. "'I cannot welcome you with love on sight. "'I armed myself long ago against the frauds of men, "'impostors who might come.' And all those whose underhand ways bring evil on. Clever, careful Penelope found a way to protect herself from any man or god who pretended to be Odysseus. Their secret sign, their bed. This cunning alone shows, according to many people, the matched quality of Penelope and Odysseus. He, the cunning man, would think of a trick like that. And to be worthy of him, she must be clever and cunning too. And she was she found a way to stay loyal to Odysseus, no matter who showed up at her door. And we hear a comparison Penelope makes to Helen, who was stolen away by a goddess, and how much that trickery cost, the trickery that Penelope sought to protect herself from. But here and now, what sign could be so clear as this of our own bed, no other man has ever laid eyes on it. Only my own slave, Actoris, that my father sent me as a gift. She kept our door you make my stiff heart know that I am yours. Again, with the mention of the slaves clearly showing their wealth, I think that's the purpose of this, but also only one other person has ever seen this bed, right? A slave. So clearly this knowledge is well guarded. Clearly only Odysseus and Penelope would know. And the last few lines of our text read, Now from his breast into his eyes the ache of longing mounted, and he wept at last, his dear wife, clear and faithful in his arms. And so she too rejoiced, her gaze upon her husband, and her white arms round him, pressed as though forever. In book 24, which we don't have but which is actually the last book of the Odyssey, Odysseus and Penelope tell each other what has happened while he's been away. Then Odysseus visits his father Laertes to give him the good news of a safe return. Meanwhile, the townspeople are angry about the death of the suitors, and they gather together to try to fight Odysseus. But in the end, Athena steps in and makes peace amongst them. Athena makes sure that the townspeople feel peace, They lose their anger at Odysseus for slaughtering all of their sons. And I would hope there's also some anger about the maid's death, but who knows? In this book, according to Sparknotes, the audience also hears of Hermes leading the souls of the suitors who are crying like bats into Hades. We also see in Hades Agamemnon and Achilles who are arguing over who had the better death. And we see the suitor Amphidon who Odysseus tried to pardon but who Athena made stay. We see him encounter Agamemnon, and he gives a brief account of their ruin, pinning most of the blame on Penelope and her indecision. And Agamemnon contrasts the constancy, the faithfulness of Penelope with the treachery of his own wife, Clytemnestra. And this is really interesting because it gives another look at what the expectations were for women, further confirming the idea that no matter what your husband did, You were expected to be loyal to him at all costs. Otherwise, you were going to suffer. And that was justice. So in this book, while it's often used as a key example of Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, it's also used as the development of the archetype of the loyal wife who Penelope fulfills. So really interesting that we end with that lesson here, that message in the 24th and the final book of this odyssey, that the lesson here is the comparison between a disloyal wife and a loyal wife. And the loyal wife is ultimately rewarded and the disloyal wife is condemned. With that, we've come to the end of our episode. This is the last episode going over the books of the Odyssey In this episode, we see the cleverness of Penelope in setting the test of the bow for the suitors, in trying to find the best possible outcome of being forced to choose a suitor. We also see her test Odysseus to ensure it is truly her husband before her, before she accepts this person as her husband. We see the wrath of Odysseus and Telemachus and even Athena as they bring about the death of the suitors and the disloyal maids. Lastly, we see Athena sweep peace over the community of Ithaca and allow Odysseus to rest and put down his arms. Finally, special thanks to these sources, Robert Fitzgerald's translation of Homer's The Odyssey, Sparknotes, and Lit Charts.